You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In 1774, a frail man was hoisted off a ship that had just arrived in Philadelphia, stricken with typhoid, who was brought off the boat on a stretcher. It was fitting in a way. Nearly 40, the man had been unsuccessful in nearly everything that he had tried. Yet he would become a hero of American independence. His rope business, what his father had taught him, failed. He sought employment as a customs excise officer in Great Britain. He was fired. His wife and child, both killed in childbirth. His household possessions sold to pay debts. He moved to London with nothing. Yet Tom Paine had developed something. During his stint as a customs officer, he wasn't happy with the pay that he was receiving and decided to take word of this to his fellow citizens. He published a flyer arguing for the increased pay of officers like himself. He printed 4,000 copies of it and handed it out in the London streets. It was because of this writing and other writings that he was introduced to Benjamin Franklin, who was now living in London. Franklin suggested that Payne should go to America. And now, as an unlucky ship passenger following his advice, he held a letter from Dr. Franklin, and that got him top treatment by a Philadelphia doctor. And upon his recovery, introduction to the printers and booksellers and writers of the largest American colonial city, He became editor of the leading literary magazine and became friends with the physician, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and many others. They would meet Payne in the coffee houses, in the taverns, in the pharmacy shop, where several activists arguing for independence met. And they would be impressed with his mind, his way of grasping things, and communicating them to others. His confidence, absolute confidence, that a separation from Britain had to be had. They encouraged him to write something that could sum up the case for a separation with Britain. But what would he write? An article in a paper that's discarded easily, soon forgotten. Too short. A book that's too long and too expensive for the average American consumer. No, it had to be something that could be easy to carry, easy to pass on, easy to read out loud and low cost. He decided on a pamphlet, saddle-stitched, a few dozen pages, and that pamphlet was called Common Sense. And it's important to study it to understand the American Revolution and what it meant. Now, we are going to talk about Thomas Paine, and we are going to talk about Common Sense, but first, as we hit the end of the year here, I want to mention 
that the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is available at myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you've been listening for a while, and we have a lot of new listeners with each year, you've heard maybe 20 shows, maybe you've been involved in a couple of years and you've heard several dozen shows. If you want just about everything that we've recorded and I have discussed quite a bit of topics, go to the archive www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com to can purchase the archive. Price is 18.88. About 24 hours you will receive the URL and you'll go there and it's a web page and all of the previous podcasts are there available for download. Hours, hours, hours of discussion on topics. Every once in a while, I re-listen to the archive myself, and I'm struck by them. I mean, it's like listening to someone else, and I don't remember some of the things I said. Just the other day, I was listening to the podcast on ethanol. We, we called it Talking Corn. And in the Talking Corn cast, I had remembered that Theodore Roosevelt played a role in encouraging the use of alcohol-based fuels by removing attacks on industrial alcohol. So, interesting little little tidbits. There's one on there in the history of the primaries, and we've got several casts on New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and those states. Good refresher. We are about to go to into another presidential sweepstakes. One of my favorites, not too long ago, 2012, Your TV Lied to You is about presidential scandals, Watergate and others. Lebanon and Mexico is about two forgotten American interventions. Presidential protection is about the Secret Service. It's one that I've always liked. How it came to be the branch that protected presidents. Labor unions in five easy pieces. We take a serious look. The history of the labor union going all the way back to early America and what it means today. So many topics. You know, some people say, Bruce, you know, I really like the program and I would like to contribute more than 1888. There is a donation button. If you do not feel that you can afford the 1888, but you want to donate something, use the donate button. And with any donation, I'll give you the archive. It's been a good year. Really proud of 2014. We got a chance to do a serious look at some deep issues. The Chamberlain series, which I think has added to the discussion. I really enjoy doing the program. There are some costs. Website hosting fees, storage fees, equipment costs, and particularly with my podcast, books. So there are some costs to the program. And just like you would support your local public radio station, if you so choose, and if you listened, uh, I appreciate archive purchases or any donation you can make. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com So, where we left Thomas Paine is that he authors Common Sense, the name from Benjamin Rush. It's supposed to be a pamphlet of common sense. It's so simple. You should be separating from Britain. He shows it to at least four people, Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, David Rittenhouse, big player in the Philadelphia scene, and Rush, of course. First print run is January 1776. 
This is an important time. Now, you got to think about the years 1775 and 1776, because in patriotic lore, we keep thinking about 1776. Recently, Kevin Phillips has a great book, which demonstrates how it's really 1775 that was the critical year, because many people are thinking if we're in January 1776, well, we haven't declared independence yet. We're not fighting the British yet, right, as Americans. But the first shots, Lexington and Concord, are, are fired in 1775. There are British soldiers stationed in the United States, and there are British warships attacking certain rebellious New England towns. And up and down the eastern coast, there are committees of safety that have basically taken over the functions of the royal government. So 75 is not a time to think of, do we stay with Britain or do we get independence? And that's the textbook way. But it's, do we reconcile with Britain or do we go for independence? Because in most people's minds at that time, there was a conflict with the king and the parliament. He releases this pamphlet, Common Sense, and it takes off. There's no other way to describe it than an early American blockbuster. A bookseller's dream, printer's delight. It's a hit in the taverns. A writer would buy a copy, bring it to a tavern, and read it to people. Copy might be sitting there for other travelers to read. There's more tolerance for reading things out loud. There's no TV. There are a lot of pamphlets going out there, and some were discussing this very topic, American reconciliation or independence. Nothing caught on like common sense. Now, I think it's one of these things we hear a lot about common sense in Thomas Paine, but most people aren't familiar with the actual text of the document. So I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And Paine goes to his task in common sense in three parts. One is he's destroying the government of England and showing that they have no credibility. Secondly, he presents the situation of America compared to England and what he'd like to see. And then he looks at America itself and what we could do beyond just separating from Britain. And he starts out, the trouble with government is that we furnish the means by which we suffer. Pain tries to break the hold of the crown over the mind of the American colonials. He lays it out. Government by kings was first introduced to the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. The heathens paid divine honors unto their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan, by doing the same to their living ones. He goes deeper. He talks about the general Gideon, who correctly told Israelites when they wanted to make him king that he could not accept because... It was not for human beings to make a king. The Lord is the only king. You know, people are reading the Bible. Biblical references are important, so he spends a lot of time in this. But he uses logic, too. Look, England, since the conquest, hath known some few good monarchs, but groaned beneath a larger number of bad ones. Look at William the Conqueror, he says. A French bastard, landing with an armed bandati, is in plain terms... A very rascally original. There's all sorts of problems with setting up a government by kings. I mean, kings can be minors at different times. When the, They can also be old people who are senile. He says that, oh, some will say that 
kings prevent civil wars. This is false. Europe is too thickly planted with kingdoms to be long at peace. And whenever a war breaks out between England and any foreign power, the trade of America goes to ruin because of her connection with Britain. The republics of Europe are all, and may we say always, in peace. Holland and Switzerland are without wars, foreign or domestic. Look at Richard and Henry, the houses of York and Lancaster, fighting for 60 years over the British throne from 1422 to 1489. No, kings lead to more war, he says. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. And he ends this section with that the influence of the crown is not only bad in itself, the influence of the crown, he says, hath poisoned the commons. This is interesting because, you know, you'll hear a lot sometimes in discussions of the American Revolution that, well, actually, the colonists were mad at Parliament, but they supported the king. Uh, definitely not true of Thomas Paine and not true of a lot of, I think, by the time you're getting to 1775 and the king's armies are in action in the continent, it's not just about Parliament. The king is also a problem. In the second section of his Common Sense, Paine attacks the association between America and England and any attempts to reconcile it. The last chord is now broken. The people of England are presenting addresses against us. There are injuries which nature cannot forgive. She would cease to be nature if she did. As well can the lover forgive the ravisher of his mistress as the continent forgive the murders of Britain. He attacked several tenants that were commonly heard at the time, that America needed Britain, that America was better for being part of England. Here he goes. I have heard proposed by some that as America has flourished under her former connection, the same connection is necessary for her future happiness. We may as well assert that because a child has thrived upon milk, that it is never to have meat. Some say, he argues, that we need Britain's protection. Britain is not protecting us, the Americans. She is protecting her Britain. In almost every article of defense we abound. Hemp flourishes even so to rankness that we need not for cordage. Our iron is superior to those of other countries. Our small arms equal to any of the world. Cannon we can cast at pleasure. Saltpetter, gunpowder we are every day producing. Our knowledge is hourly improving. Resolution is our inherent character, and courage hath never yet forsaken us. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The continent hath at this time the largest body of armed and disciplined men of any power under heaven. 
and is just arrived at that pitch of strength in which no single colony is able to support itself and the whole, when united, is able to do anything. Why is it that we hesitate? From Britain, we can expect nothing but ruin. In fact, look, she's taking on enemies that we have no quarrel with. France and Spain are not enemies of Americas. They're only enemies of Americans because we are subjects of Great Britain. He points out that if you look at Pennsylvania, probably only a third of the inhabitants are descended from Englishmen. So there he's talking about the German-American population, the Scots-Irish population, the Scottish population, and the Irish population. It's absurd, he says, for a continent to be ruled by an island, to always be running three or four thousand miles with a tail or petition, wasting three or four months for an answer. There was a time that that was proper, and there's a proper time for it to cease. A king has a veto over American laws. America will always be secondary to Britain and its policies. And America's growth will be stunted by its connection with Britain. It will not prosper. He's going to express a lot of confidence in this idea of separation. I've never met a man who has not confessed his opinion that separation between Britain and America would take place at one time or another. It is repugnant to reason, to the universal order of things, to all examples from former ages, that this continent can longer remain subject to any external power. The utmost stretch of human wisdom cannot at this time compass a plan short of separation. Small islands are not capable of protecting themselves. They are the proper objects for kingdoms to take under their care. In no instance in nature made the satellite larger than its primary planet. Pain that gets into what Americans should do. Debts we have none. No nation ought to be without debt. A national debt is a national bond. And he wants this debt for a purpose, to establish a government, to establish an American navy. We have enough military units on the land, he argues, but we need a navy. We are not the little people which we were 60 years ago. At that time, we might have trusted our property in the streets or fields, rather, and slept securely without locks or bolts to our doors and windows. The case is now altered, and our methods of defense ought to improve with our increase in property. In the third edition of Common Sense, he puts in the numbers about what a navy would cost, just three million pounds, something we would be very much able to raise, he says, on a rich continent such as ours. Not only do we have the money for that, not only could we borrow in a continental association, we have timber, we have iron. Other countries are dependent on importing those things. He goes on and on about the resources of America because a lot of this is a kind of a pep talk for America. Like, you're good. We have, we're an infant nation, but that's good that we're infant nation. We don't have the established jealousies that other nations have. We can establish a government now before the population gets too big. But most of all, look at the land America has. Now, if you reconcile with Britain, the land of America is going to be given out to the king and his worthless dependents. When this land could be used to benefit Americans. It could be used as payment of debt. If we're going to build a navy, we'll need that. 
it could be used to support the government. And what government is it that he wants? He makes some specific recommendations for a new American government. First of all, the conferring members to be met, let their business be to frame a continental charter or charter of the United Colonies, answering what is called the Magna Carta of England, fixing the number and manner of choosing members of Congress, members of assembly, with their date of sitting and drawing the line of business and jurisdiction between them, always remembering that our strength is continental, not provincial. Securing freedom and property to all men, and above all things, the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. He suggests that there be an annual assembly of 390 people, at least 30 from each colony, and that they decide matters, they decide laws. Three-fifths of them would be needed to pass a law. That's his suggestion. That's a very high level of representation. He wants a rotating president. Each colony makes a choice, president from their colony, and they take turns so that each colony gets a chance to have the presidency. Who will be king of America, you ask? In America, the law is king. Finally, he ends with a pitch, a fevered pitch, for American independence, but just points out that if you want to have independence, all right, you are not going to get any help from France or Spain when you're subjects of Great Britain. You're going to be considered rebels. And the kingdoms of France, the kingdoms of Spain, they, they do not want to help out rebels of another king. As much as they like to give Great Britain trouble, they don't want to help out rebels because they might get rebellions in their own countries. You have to separate and become an independent nation, and then you can ask for their help as a peer. He suggests that instead of sending petitions to England trying to reconcile or repeal some law, they should be sending letters to the courts of the world expressing friendship and expressing their desire to be an independent nation. These proceedings may seem at first strange and difficult, but like all other steps, which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable. And until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. So ends common sense. And I've talked about how common sense could be considered right up there with the Declaration, with the Constitution, because it is a founding document. It's a document that excited a lot of people. If you're looking to think, well, what were in the minds of the people at the time of the American Revolution? Well, this was the document that they got behind, that they passed around, and it was popular. And it wasn't popular as something they were arguing with, although that happened in some cases. It was popular as something that summed up what they were feeling. So what can we take away from common sense? First of all, I think it's a document that espouses freedom of the right of people to govern themselves. 
Payne is a person with strong Republican principles and common sense echoes that. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Common sense is suspicious of kings. And starts off with some very libertarian almost thinking that government, even in the best state, is but necessary evil. But he keeps speaking positively about society, sees government as a creation that has to be watched. He's very interested, therefore, in common sense and in other writings that Payne would write, in the connection between the government and the people, and he wants it to be close. For instance, he suggested a rather large representation for what the Continental Assembly that he wanted. 390 members in a population of just 2.5 million people. All right, We have 435 in our House of Representatives now with 317 million people. So he was looking for something that was very representative, that the people could speak often and change the government often. Another thing about common sense, it is an American document. Now, you have to remember at this time, not everybody was thinking American. And they were thinking, you know, if you were from New England, it might be, well, I'm a New Englander. If you were Peter Jefferson or Thomas Jefferson, you called Virginia your country. New Englanders might use that term to refer to a, a, a large space that might have between colonies. They'll, they'll say New Englanders or something like that. Or you might say a Massachusetts, I'm a Massachusetts man. But Payne, and particularly coming in as an Englishman, is invoking the name America. He's a believer in the whole continent in that the strength is in the Continental Association, the strength is in numbers, the strength is in how large the land is, the strength is in how much resources have. His words would turn out to be prophetic, that America did get strong from all the resources it had and from the size that it had and dare we say, from a Republican government like one he suggested. His support for a large navy and the borrowing and financing for it by the American colonies would suggest that he wasn't necessarily against some large project. But I think you're seeing a mix here of a need for, we might say, a big government, or at least for big projects in some situations, but a desire to have the government stay democratic and stay representative. I don't think Payne, and it's reflected in common sense, is enamored with presidents. I'm not sure that he'd like the kind of executive power that we have today. 
he suggests a rotating president, which would imply that it wouldn't be a person that would have the kind of power that a four-year or eight-year president would have. Now, we know some of what Payne was thinking because he's going to go on later in the same year, in 76, using his fame from the pamphlet, and suggest that Pennsylvania do a constitution. That constitution is extremely democratic. It's, it's radical for its time, and they actually did end up changing it later, but the 1776 Pennsylvania Constitution has one assembly. There's no Senate. Governors not involved in laws. The new state of Pennsylvania was started is the executive council of people. So the assembly, only the members only serve for one year. And then the whole thing has a council of censors that watch the government of Pennsylvania. So you see that suspicion over the executive authority and making sure that the the people are in on there by this creation of a third branch. Payne is going to be progressive in some ways, libertarian in some ways. There's probably a lot of quotes of common sense that you could use for a lot of different political situations. But the overarching theme of common sense is that Americans at the time were presented with a situation where Power had become stagnant. Government had become stagnant. America was being run by a government thousands of miles away. And that uh, the cure was more representation, introducing important tenets of self-government, including constitutions. So I would say suspicious of government, suspicious of a few people having power, but not an isolationist and not, a, uh, and not unconcerned for society. Pain's a mix there. One of the reasons that I got into this discussion, I thought it was interesting, is that I got a question on Quora, and that is, how much money was spent advertising Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense? Well, not a shilling, nor a single bit of a Spanish dollar, as near as I can tell, was spent convincing American colonists to read Common Sense, the type of advertising you might do for books today. It was a bestseller right from the get-go. Americans generally knew about it. They would seek to read it if they could get their hands on it. Now, there's still a question, though, because some amount was spent telling people where to buy it. You did do that in that day. Probably spent by booksellers, by one of Payne's two printers, and the numerous unofficial printers. I think that the spread of common sense happened faster than one could achieve through advertising like that. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush describes the time between the printing of Payne's book and the effect that it had has rarely been produced by type and paper in any age or country. And he says it was only a few days. One assumes there was plenty of word of mouth because, as I mentioned, Payne had shown the book to Benjamin Franklin, to Rush, to Sam Adams. They were connected in Philadelphia, and I'm sure they talked about, you got to read this pamphlet. And that spread thing. Those are heavy hitters to start something. So I think word of mouth, and more importantly, word of letter spreads that pamphlet around. Like any blockbuster, it led to infighting as to who would earn the profits. Richard Bell was Payne's first printer. Payne picks him because he was doing a little bit of a bootleg business, which you could do because copyright law wasn't really reaching the Americas. So there were people in... Scotland, Ireland, but as they started to crack down, they came to America more that would print books that had an English copyright, but that, you know, wasn't being enforced in America. 
So Richard Bell wasn't exactly a believer in royal authority anyway. But they did argue about the printing. They were supposed to split the profit. Bell, after he prints up the first copies of Common Sense and sells them, says, well, I had stitching costs, I had ink costs, I had paper costs. That took up the entire sales. Payne obviously didn't agree, felt he deserved half the profits. He has a public quarrel with Richard Bell. He finds a new printer. He adds some additional material when you get to the second and third editions of Common Sense, and the page count grows a bit. Richard Bell keeps on printing his pirate version of Common Sense. You see, copyright law isn't what it is now. Uh, It's likely that advertising was spent by Richard Bell and by Tom Payne's second printers to advertise their publication. Uh, Thomas Payne estimates that 120,000 sold in three months in 1776. That's probably impossible. He's bragging a little bit. And, and scores of thousands must have been sold. Hundreds of thousands read. Many copies were passed around, read out to each other, read aloud. Payne wants the message to be spread. He eventually releases his copyright, and now you've got 27 editions of Common Sense that are published across the colonies, and then you got versions in Germany and versions in Great Britain. The cost of Common Sense was two shillings, Payne felt that was a little bit too much. So when he separates from his first printer, Bell, he negotiates and they use a little bit lower quality paper. So you get the price down to one shilling. A very rough and flawed comparison today, I'm kind of looking at the wage of workers and the cost of certain items. You might say that's about $5 that that common sense cost. Yet Payne wasn't really interested in shillings or dollars though he didn't mind a few coming his way. He was seeking not to profit, but he was seeking influence and inspiration of his fellow colonists. He wanted to donate the profits from the first edition for mittens for soldiers fighting in Quebec. The American Continental Army had invaded Quebec at that time. So to go back to the advertising question, how much was spent on advertising common sense. Not a lick of advertising, in my opinion, and to the limits of my knowledge, was spent convincing an American colonist to read common sense. They knew about it, wanted it. The sell was achieved in Tavern Whisper and in the postal mail communications at the time. I mean, a book still needed to be sold, and you had to tell people where and when to get it. His original publisher, Richard Bell, did put ads in newspapers, Newspapers at the time only made about a third of their money from advertisements. Most of the money came directly from readers. And in some cases, if you subscribe to a, a newspaper in the colonies, you might get a free ad. You know, they, they wanted your subscription fee. But booksellers and printers were common advertisers. And they might use an ad to advertise lists of books that they had available, of which one note would be the availability of common sense. So... As for what an ad would look like, here's a little note in a very patriotic-minded newspaper, the Boston Gazette. A few of those celebrated pamphlets entitled Common Sense to be sold, if applied for soon, at Mr. Samuel Waite's next to the Mason Arms in Cambridge and at the printing office in Watertown. That is for the Boston edition that was printed in Boston. The ad was taken out by the printer, but it referenced the bookseller too. So either both paid for the ad, or obviously it's just good for a printer to get its book sold at the bookseller. 
As to what is spent on advertising, we'll try, but this is going to be real rough. Um, we know that a nice-sized ad in Franklin's Pennsylvania Gazette that he published, and now we're talking about the 1740s, would have been 7 to 10 shillings. So maybe a little inflation, and we're going to say perhaps 20 shillings in 1776. If it's a whole ad placed for common sense, not always the case. I figure about anywhere from 75 to 90,000 copies were sold, where someone actually made a transaction to get a copy of Common Sense. And it doesn't mean Payne got all of that. Of course, a lot of it was printers that he no longer had. He released his copyright. So, with some variance in price between a shilling or two, depending on the editions, assuming printers outside of Philadelphia may have charged a little more than Payne's generous price, uh, that means about 6,300 pounds were earned selling Common Sense, 630 thousand dollars in today's u.s dollars about using the cost of things like a pistol a saddle a teacher's salary and the like from our colonial williamsburg official history site each of the 27 printers had to announce the publication at least once maybe a second we're talking about two 540 shillings spent on ads if there are four significant colonial cities with near 10,000 of population new york boston philadelphia charleston and then it's a stretch but newport and baltimore uh, if they, between them, had like 22 large booksellers, then let's say another 440 shillings. So I think you got no more than 1,200 or so shillings or $6,000 in today's dollars spent advertising common sense. I really think it's the word of mouth that has spread. It just 14 days after the printing, you have General Charles Lee writing Washington. Have you seen the pamphlet Common Sense? He goes gaga about it in the letter, how it convinced him about independence, how it's a great blow to Great Britain, how it was exactly what he was thinking. So I think word of mouth was spreading common sense, and more importantly, the word of letters, as that's the way people communicated with each other. I want to thank you for listening, and once again, end of the year here, if you'd like to purchase the archive www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and if you want to donate to the program, there's a donate button there. I do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.